And we welcome you to the Tuesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. It's wall-to-wall sports today with two fun interviews from the morning show archives. In part one, a conversation about what parents should do if their children are athletic, what to do to keep them healthy and happy athletes. In part two, we'll explore the exciting world of sports memorabilia. Here's part one. If you are a parent with children that are athletes, then uh, I have the book for you. A very interesting look at the life and uh, well-being of young athletes. It's by Dr. Jordan D. Metzel. It's called The Young Athlete, A Sports Doctor's Complete Guide for Parents. Uh, Dr. Jordan Metzel himself was an athlete growing up and is still an athlete, and uh, he is... uh, in the field of sports medicine and works with young athletes and their parents all the time and has written a book which is to serve as as a helpful guide uh, for parents and young athletes who are navigating these uh, sometimes dangerous waters. Uh, Dr. Jordan Metzel, we welcome you to the morning show. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. In the introduction to the book, you talk about your own childhood and the fact uh, that that you were very much an athlete. One thing that really jumped out at me was the fact that that, uh, your parents were anxious that you and your brothers not be, in, in your words, just dumb jocks, but well-rounded young men as well. So you were this athlete that also played the flute and went to the opera and so on, right? Well, that's right. And I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you read that intro, and, and it really does kind of spell out my philosophy for, you know, for the whole book, uh, that basically I think sports are so tremendously valuable and important for kids, for adults. Uh, and I think the correct way, though, to kind of balance sports is, is, is definitely trying to balance out all aspects of life. And that often in our sports-crazed culture, we see parents who become so involved with their kids' sports that that's all they talk about, that's all they focus on. And while I think uh, you know, that will make you potentially a better athlete, uh, the, the potential of you becoming the next Michael Jordan or Michelle Kwan is so small uh, that I think kind of becoming a balanced person is important. And sports are so important, not only when you're a child, but but the messages you give kids in terms of what sports will be throughout their lifetime. Uh, So, for example, uh, the 12-year-old soccer player who's playing on his travel team, his his school team, two or three travel soccer teams, uh, can get burnt out from playing soccer, and the end result is they lose interest, and and they really don't want to play soccer when they get older or do things athletic. So I think keeping perspective across the lifespan is what we're after for, for parents. And that will, that, I think that, that can be accomplished by getting a good balance. I also wanted to mention one other thing from the introduction to the book. You mentioned the fact that not all that long ago, sports medicine was uh, a vocation that was kind of looked down upon uh, compared to other fields of, of medical science. And that when you chose to go into it, it was uh, somewhat to the bewilderment of, of, of some of your uh, maybe colleagues or friends of your parents. I, I'm not sure, but, but clearly that is not the situation now. Sports medicine is, is a, a, a very much respected field, don't you think? Well, that's right, and the field has come so very far. And, uh, and I think you know, with that, the advice that we give to families has come so very far. So in the olden days, you know, if your elbow hurt from throwing too many baseballs in Little League, the advice was just stop throwing baseballs. Or if your shins hurt from running too much, stop running. And these days, we know so much more about not only what injuries are, but why they happen. So especially with kids, I'm a huge believer, in, and, and I'm sure you'll get to this, in terms of prevention, preventive strengthening. Um, and we know why injuries happen. Once we do that, we can, uh, importantly, prevent them from becoming recurrent problems. And so that's why uh, the, the field has evolved so very much, and that has been backed up by science uh, research on why different injuries happen and what you can do to, to really prevent those from happening. 
I really loved how you explored in, in great detail uh, the benefits of of athletic competition, or maybe not even so much the competition part, although certainly to an extent, but just athletic endeavor, that it yields all kinds of benefits for a, a, a young man or a young woman, uh, and, and maybe benefits that we don't even stop to really think about. Well, that's right. Uh, you know, the book is very much about kind of mind and body, and in, in the mind chapters, I really do talk about, uh, and the first chapter is called The Benefits of, of Sports, and, and really talk about what uh, what things sports do? They, you know, basically athletes do better in school. They concentrate better when they're during their sports season. Uh, you know, the old concept of the dumb jock just doesn't apply. It's not true statistically at all. Uh, and you know, things from self-esteem to health health markers across the board. You know, sports are a great thing for kids to do. But I think the issue then is, you know, what is too much? What is unhealthy? How do you recognize that as a parent? And most importantly, how do you prevent that scenario from happening in your own kids? Right. Among the things that jumped out at me that I'd not stopped to think about is that uh, a young athlete is taught the value of preparation. And never, I'd never stopped to think about that, that, that that doesn't happen maybe a whole lot in other areas of a, of a, of a young child's life. But, but an athlete really learns what preparation is all about. Well, I'll tell you, Greg, um, I'm going out to do... Uh, uh, Boston Marathon in a couple days. Uh, by the time this airs, it will be done. Um, and it's my 19th marathon in my ninth year of Boston in a row. And uh, I can tell you personally that whether or not you think about sports medicine or you uh, do whatever or think about running and you do your running a little bit, if you don't prepare for doing the marathon, about mile 20 or so, your body says, all right, that's it, <laughs> you're done, whether you want to be or not. And I will tell you that for my own athletic career, I've kind of recognized that you know, when you prepare, you do fine, and when you don't prepare, you can't get around it. And and sports are such a very healthy way to learn about, uh, you know, what it means to prepare. And I think those lessons do carry over into life, uh, be it preparing for a test or preparing for your taxes or preparing for whatever, um, that I think that preparation uh, really ensures success. And and in line with that, you also mentioned the fact, again, among a, a long list of, of very compelling uh, benefits of, of athletics, of ath- being an athlete, you talk about how an athlete needs to to uh, have long term thinking, and how so much of life for a young person is about instant gratification. But for uh, the life of an athlete, uh, they need to think beyond the the the, the given moment. That's right. Uh, you know, you, often when people are involved in you know the heat of the battle or in a sports environment where you don't think about the long term, and something I try to do in the book is is to encourage parents to become involved in all aspects of sports and their kids. So, for example, if your child comes home with a jar of ripped fuel, they can get it to GNC, and they, it's, a, it's a supplement that kids might want to take to get the, uh, the look of the guy on the, on the front of the bottle who has kind of a six-pack abs and these big muscles, and they say, listen, I want to take ripped fuel. And as a parent, you need to kind of think about, A, what's in there. That, that, substance, that, that product contains ephedra, which has been linked to you know, a number of, of deaths related to heat illness, the most recent one being a Major League Baseball player a few weeks ago in Florida. So you have that. And then B, it's a kind of that instilling perspective. Listen, I know you want to be stronger. This is not the way to do it. But I respect the fact that you want to do better. Let's get you started on some strength training or some weight training. And I give some examples of how parents can do that with their kids at home. I wanted to also mention the fact that uh, you, uh, as someone who ha- had... Uh, some background in the arts growing up, um, you, you are in a position to compare sort of the uh, relative benefits of being an athlete versus being a musician or being a dancer or being an actor on the stage. And uh, 
you ask, you pose the question to the to the reader: uh, Are the benefits of sports unique? And you say, in some ways, yes. Not to denigrate the importance of playing in the orchestra or uh, singing in the choir or being in a play, but you you talk about how there are some things that make athletic endeavor unique. And one of the things you talk about is that they demand a spontaneous response to surprise. Why is that important? Well, because you can prepare and prepare. Uh, for example, if you're in a opera and you prepare your part in the opera, you know your choreography is all blocked, uh, you're ready to sing, you know, unless somebody makes a huge mistake, <laughs> you're pretty much going to do the same thing. You know, it will be altered, but not dramatically. But if you're playing in a basketball game, and you've worked on your jump shot, uh, you know, for the last 10 years or whatever, depending on what the person across from you does, uh, unless you're playing horse or pig or something like that, if you're in a game, you can't predict what the other person is going to do. That requires spontaneity. So I think that, that success on the sports field uh, is a combination of that which you can prepare for and that which with, with which you are blessed, and it's a combination of both of those attributes that make you a good athlete. But I really do feel strongly that there's something for every kid that basically uh, kids can be discouraged if they're not a great basketball player. And I'll tell you personally, I'm a terrible basketball player, but I'm a good soccer player. Uh, so I played soccer a lot more than I played basketball. And I think that I often kind of run into the problem where the mom or the dad was really gifted in one domain, and so the kids either want to or the parents encourage strongly them to be involved in that domain, and they just don't like it. And, uh, and I think that it's important to kind of be receptive to the skill sets your kids have uh, and also the things they like to do, because, again, the focus is long-term health. We're talking today with Dr. Jordan Metzel, the author of The Young Athlete, A Sports Doctor's Complete Guide for Parents. You do focus your attention in Chapter 2 on the parent. You uh, tell a few horror stories, uh, and we all know them well, of course, about parents that uh, really do not uh, keep this in moderation and uh, sort of live out their own dreams in their in their in their child's athletic uh, endeavors. In fact, you call it emotional overinvestment and even give us some, some tangible warning signs that parents need to be on, on guard for if they are letting this kind of get out of hand. Well, that's right. Um, there is such a thing as the overinvolved sports parent. Uh, and I do kind of go through uh, what you can do to recognize if you are that parent or if that parent exists in the domain in which your kids are participating. And, you know, what, what some of those warning signs are, uh, the over, you know, sports is the only thing you talk about at home, uh, for example. Uh, and, you know, I think it's important, though certainly I would never discourage any parent from being involved in what their kids are doing, just the opposite. Uh, there is this kind of over-involved parent syndrome, and, uh, and how you recognize and deal with that in yourself uh, is really, really important, and sometimes you don't, you don't know it's kind of happening. Uh, and... Uh, and, and this kind of gives you some clues in terms of how you can uh, perhaps figure that out. One of my favorite moments in the chapter is when you suggest that parents need to diversify their emotional portfolio. What a great way to put it. Well, yeah, I was trying to really think of kind of creative ways to uh, to talk about those kind of things, and that's exactly right. Diversifying your emotional portfolio, you know, being involved in different things, you know, much like hopefully you're doing uh, if you're investing in the stock market, though, uh, that's not been such a great thing, but diversification is the key. Right. And just for a second, because I th- found this very thought- thought-provoking, one of your suggestions for a parent that maybe needs to uh, diversify their emotional portfolio and maybe just step back a bit from their uh, children's uh, athletic endeavors, you suggest the rule of three, uh, of, of choosing to skip every third game. <laughs> 
Uh, is that something you ever had to do as yeah. a parent? Or, or well, a- basically, we do see parents that need that, and and I think the rule of threes again for this over-involved uh, parent, and and I think that the point of that is that not all parents need to do that, and 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 certainly uh, not every parent uh, wants to do that. But I think that if you're a parent who feels like they absolutely have to be at every single game and they can't focus on other things because they have to be at every second of every game. We have one story where a parent actually videotaped every second of every game, soccer game his nine-year-old played in, and then and then kind of edited all those videos together. And, you know, that's a bit of over-involvement and too much pressure on that kid. So uh, I think by, by making, your skills, making yourself skip every third game, it, it, it does, uh, if you're one, a parent... Uh, with, the, with that kind of stuff going on, it does, I think, uh, help keep it in better perspective. You quote the Old Testament in uh, entitling Chapter 4, To Everything There Is a Season, <laughs> and um, you, you talk about the importance of instilling that sense of perspective, of course, not just in parents, but, but in uh, the young athletes uh, themselves, and, uh, and pose some, some questions and, uh, and, and uh, outline some warning signs which might indicate that uh, a given young person is maybe overdoing it as an athlete. That's right. And, you know, something I really kind of go through in the book uh, is the warning signs of too much sports, both mind and in body. And in mind, you know, kids who treat sports like a job, they're not having fun doing it, uh, sometimes grade problems. Um, those are kind of emotional or psychological over-involvement. And then from, from a body point of view, some of the repetitive injuries, stress fractures, tendonitis, how do you recognize that as a parent or a coach? How do you prevent those injuries from happening through, through things like strength training? Those are, those are kind of both uh, mind and body uh, issues related to too much or unhealthy sports. One question that I think is particularly interesting and maybe not very easy to, to answer, you, you're, you're posing here about you know, the scenario of, of, uh, of a young athlete that is devoting just too much of their day and maybe too much of the year to uh, athletic endeavor, but you talk also about how uh, a similar danger is in too much specialization in a young athlete focusing all of their energies in one sport when you say in some ways it is probably healthier, perhaps more ultimately beneficial for a young athlete to be involved in a variety of, of, of sports. Explain that. And well, that's right. Um, sport specialization, doing one sport and one sport year-round, uh, especially under the age of 12 or 13, is just not healthy for kids. It's not healthy from a mind point of view because you just become so focused on that one sport. You lose the joy of all other types of activity and also, I think, the psychological benefit of being involved with different teams. And then from a body point of view, for example, if you're only a figure skater, you're going to be much more prone to developing some of the injuries, overuse injuries of figure skating, um, back injuries, knee injuries. So what I really recommend is, especially under the age of 12 or 13, that parents encourage multiple sports for kids, so not just one sport year-round, but multiple sports. You also suggest uh, in in, uh, the seventh chapter of the book, preparing for the sport season, the fact that conditioning and training before a given season has even begun is particularly critical to uh, the ultimate health of a young person. Absolutely, and we actually recommend, um, and and I recommend weight training, strength training in kids starting at eight, nine years of age, and I try and give parents in that chapter uh, uh, instructions on how to really set up these programs for their kids at home and, and really do that by the sport they're involved with. Uh, and the old thinking was kind of weight training stunts your growth, uh, but it's not true if you do it properly with kids. And, and, and I have a number of parents in my practice. The parents actually do these programs with their kids at home. They become, in essence, the trainers for the kids. 
And I think it's such a great way to prevent these problems before they happen and also to become involved in not only being a spectator but also actively helping your kids do better and, 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 and really have a safer experience. Do young people have, by and large, resilient bodies? I mean, does, does a young person have sort of a greater capacity to, to heal from, from injuries, or, or do we need to think of young people as actually physically fragile? Well, uh, it's a good question, and the, the point is that young people do heal quicker, uh, but uh, the injuries that happen during childhood and adolescence can sometimes have lifelong implications because the bones are growing in areas called growth plates, and if those growth plates are injured, that can affect how that bone grows into adulthood. So for that reason, I try and give parents and coaches you know, indications on when to see the doctor, what kinds of injuries are common, and do it through case examples. So not like this is an elbow, this is how the elbow is injured, but you know, this is a story of a baseball player who came in, this is his elbow injury, and this is what we did, and this is what you need to look out for. Hmm. The book is great. The Young Athlete, a Sports Doctor's Complete Guide for Parents by Dr. Jordan Metzl, published by Little Brown. Dr. Metzl, a real pleasure to read this book and to talk with you today on The Morning Show. Thank you. Well, thank you. Actually, it was a terrific interview, and I really appreciate your thoughtful questions. The preceding Morning Show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2009. You're listening to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. For part two of today's program, we're digging even deeper into the Morning Show archives for an interview that was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2002. I have before me a really fascinating book called Sports Immortals, Stories of Inspiration and Achievement uh, by Jim Platt, whom we have on the phone today. What springs out of, uh, what this book springs from, not only the stories of, of these tremendous athletes and their achievements, but also what amounts to the world's largest collection of sports memorabilia, gathered first and foremost by Jim Platt's father, Joel Platt. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, his father's uh, pursuit over all these years of, of, of collecting fascinating sports memorabilia and what it has represented and, uh, and what's found in the pages of this really beautiful book, uh, Sports Immortals, published by Triumph Books. Uh, Jim Platt, we welcome you to the morning show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's really uh, interesting to look through the pages of this book and in particular to read the story of, of how uh, your father, Joel Platt, sort of began on this road of, of collecting fascinating sports memorabilia. Tell us a little bit about that uh, time in a hospital room and, and, and how that set all of this in motion. Sure. Uh, when my father was four years old, he was kind of a crazy kid, and he put a match in a gas tank of a car, and it resulted in an explosion. He was bedridden for over a year, and my parents, my, my, my grandparents rather, started buying him baseball cards to help entertain him during his long period of convalescence. And one of the first cards was of Babe Ruth. And one night he had a dream that the babe came to him at bedside and said, Kid, don't give up. You're going to get better. One day you could be a Major League Baseball player like me, or one day you could build a museum that would honor sports grades. And as he got better, he set his life out on that two-pronged journey, but unfortunately injured his arm playing baseball in college. But he never lost sight of that other dream, which was to one day build the premier museum on sports in the world that would honor and enshrine the greatest athletes of all time. And he knew at a young age that in order to accomplish that goal, that he needed to curate the memorabilia to be the nucleus for the project. 
So he started collecting in cards, went into autographs. He started writing all the athletes. And when he got his driver's license, he started to travel all over the country, meeting Mrs. Hannes Wagner, Mrs. Babe Ruth, Mrs. Jim Thorpe. And just over the last 50 years, has traveled over a million miles to curate over one million sports mementos for our Sports Mortals collection, a collection that's been documented by the Smithsonian Institute as the largest collection on all sports in the world. One thing I wanted to ask you about your father is, has this, in effect, been his life's work and his full-time job all these years? Uh, actually, it, it's, I don't want to say it's been a hobby because it's, it's been a labor of love, but he has made his successes in business as a real estate businessman. And this has been... Something, well, yeah, it's wrong to say that it's been on the side then, because actually this is really, in many respects, the central focus of his life. Correct. And tell us about your own connection to to all of this. Well, I I was kind of, uh, my dad was hoping to have many sons born, but he only had one, and I was the last child of three. And he always had dreams of me kind of, surpassing his expectations as a baseball player. And unfortunately, I injured my arm playing in college as well. And I always wanted to pursue a career in the sports field, and I knew it was a natural for me to one day take a position with Sports Immortals. Presently, I'm the vice president here, working on the development side of our future museum project. And I, we also have a sports museum presently in Boca Raton, Florida, which we call our Showcase Museum, which features roughly 30,000 items out of our million-piece collection. And we also have a memorabilia store where we sell autographed memorabilia. But it isn't meant to be our end goal. Our end goal is going to be a $100 million Smithsonian on sports with the latest interactive technologies where we'll bring the athletes to life and really create an immersive experience for sports fans of all ages to come and relive their greatest moments in sports history. But, you know, as far as my day-to-day uh, occupation. I'm actively involved in all aspects of the business, but roughly three or four years ago, I, I felt it was important to document my father's travels, and I wanted to create an inspirational and entertaining book that would really achieve three goals. One is that it would celebrate the achievements of the world's greatest athletes, bring their inspirational stories to life with over 500 beautiful photographs of incredible memorabilia from our collection. But most importantly, as you mentioned at the top of the interview, was on every page there's an immortal encounter box that tells of my father's visit with the athletes or relatives and how he was able to curate the memorabilia and relate any inspirational or anecdotal stories they may have passed on to him along the way. So it really answers the question that people ask all the time to me is, hey, Jim, how was Joel able to get this memorabilia? How was he, more than anybody else, able to convince these athletes or their relatives to donate these items to him for preservation and posterity. And it's all answered in the book, and the stories are very interesting and entertaining. And I I certainly want us to uh, get into a few of those specific stories because they really are remarkable. One thing I want to ask you about is um, it's kind of interesting to me that, for instance, somebody could be very interested in baseball, watching baseball, playing baseball, but not necessarily be interested in baseball cards or collecting historic baseball bats or any other kind of baseball 
memorabilia, that, that, that they're not one and the same. And that, and that by the same tokens, someone could be interested in collecting baseball cards, and I, I suppose it's conceivable, never watch baseball or not particularly enjoy watching it or never play it. Right. Uh, it, it sounds like for both you and for your father, uh, these interests really kind of run together as you're, you yourself being athletes and, and I think loving the, the, the games and the history and so on, but also loving the memorabilia. How do those things f- fit together? What, what predominates? Well, I think first and foremost, we're, um, well, especially for my father, he, he's on a mission. And, you know, since his childhood, he has never lost sight of that goal to, you know, develop this Sports Immortals Museum. And we're, we're about six months away from committing the project. Five states are vying for it. And in order to, you know, talk the talk, so to speak, we always have to stay current on what's going on in the sports world today. And that's not a chore at all, because from a young age, we were, we were both instilled with, you know, sports as a hallmark in our life. My grandfather was a boxing historian, and if you read in the book at the beginning section, he attended many great events, such as the 1909 fight between James J. Jeffries and Jack Johnson. He was at uh, the famous World Series with uh, the Black Sox versus the Cincinnati Reds, you know, and he related all these stories and passed them on to my father, who in turn passed along all his sports knowledge on to me. And now I have twin boys that are three months old, and I can't wait to pass on my sports knowledge to them. So it's kind of like we were born into the situation, and it's just been a, a lifelong, you know, dream of ours to create this museum. And loving sports has just been, you know, a natural progression. Um, if I may ask, uh, you made mention at some point in the interview that you, you do have a couple of sisters, uh, right. older sisters, I think. Correct. Uh, do they share any of this same passion for sports and or sports memorabilia? You know what? They're, they, they're not sports fans per se. They, they appreciate all the efforts that it has taken for my father to amass a collection, and they're very supportive of our efforts. And they help out here and there, but they're, if you ask them any sports trivia, they're not likely to come up with the answer. <laughs> We're talking uh, on the morning show today with Jim Platt, who is responsible for a really wonderful book called Sports Immortal, Stories of Inspiration and Achievement, which chronicle not only uh, the exploits of, of some of the century's most important athletes, uh, but it also chronicles the... Uh, work of his father, Joel Platt, in amassing what uh, is deemed to be the world's largest collection of sports memorabilia, which the Platts hope someday, soon, will be housed in a, a state-of-the-art museum celebrating uh, sports in general. Uh, let's talk, Jim, a little bit about some of the uh, magnificent athletes and achievements and uh, fascinating memorabilia that is celebrated uh, in the pages of, of this book. For instance, we have a very familiar name to many, that of Jim Thorpe, regarded by many as uh, the finest athlete of, of the 20th century, with, with a very interesting story involving uh, the Olympics and professional football and, 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 and so on. Tell us a little bit about your, your father's uh, experiencing, uh, experience in amassing memorabilia around, uh, sure. around the great Jim Thorpe? Um, after contacting numerous relatives of Thorpe's family uh, no one, and finding out that no one had anything of Jim's career, he found himself on the doorsteps of uh, Jim's third wife, Patricia, 
and over a five-year period visited Mrs. Thorpe and was never able to acquire any memento for the Sports Mortals collection. And then out of nowhere, he received a telegram from her saying, Joel, I am confined to bed. Please come and get Jim's things for the Sports Immortals collection. So he traveled out to California yet one more time and literally was found King Touch treasures of sports in in Jim Thorpe memorabilia. He was able to acquire two jerseys of Jim Thorpe, one that he used as a Canton Bulldog and the other that he wore while playing for the Carlisle Indians. There was a scrapbook from 1912 that he kept personally from his Olympic victories in Stockholm, Sweden. And inside, there's letters from President Taft personally signed congratulating on him on his victories. Uh, numerous Indian clothes, moccasins, gloves that he made when he was attending the Carlisle Indian School, an autographed baseball, football spikes, just unbelievable memorabilia from Jim Thorpe. And his widow simply wanted your father to have them. Correct. Uh, I, and, and, of course, this encounter happens over and over with, with, with other relatives and so on, and, and sometimes it's the athlete themselves. But, right. Uh, why do people find themselves in that, in that situation? I mean, what, what do you think is the essential motivation, for instance, for the widow of Jim Thorpe to want your father to, to have these, these precious things? Well, I think, you know, if you meet Joel, my father, he's a very sincere person. And unlike a lot of collectors who, you know, there's numerous reasons why people collect. Some collect just because they enjoy the mere quest for an item. And other people collect as an investable because at some point they know they're, they're going to harvest the reward from the appreciation of the memorabilia. But my father was a different kind of individual. His motivation wasn't so much an investment as it was he felt that he needed to curate this memorabilia to do a project for mankind. And I think that came across when he was talking to people because it wasn't a sales pitch as much as it was, you know, doing someone a favor because without him, he's, his main goal was to preserve the memories of the achievements of these great athletes. And she felt his sincerity, and she knew that anybody who would pursue her over a five-year period as many times as my dad has called her, that someone special had to be, you know, behind it. And I think a lot of athletes and their relatives felt that sincerity within my father and knew that he was someone that was going to, you know, achieve his goal, develop this museum, and that their memories were going to live forever. Another uh, widow with whom your father has quite a, a, a memorable and, and moving encounter, is uh, the widow of the great baseball player Babe Ruth. I wonder if you remember and can tell us a little bit about that, about the gift that he presented her and about uh, sure. the gifts which in turn she gave to him. Well, my father knew that he, he needed to do something unique in order to get past the front door of some of these relatives, and he was very handy while he was in high school, I believe he was 17 or 18 at the time, he was in woodshop class, and he used to cut out with wood um, a wooden ashtray and wood burn the player's statistics on it and drop a glass ashtray in the middle and put a picture of that athlete, and that was his calling card. And he would present this gift to different athletes, like Mrs. Lou Gehrig or Mrs. Babe Ruth. And he went one day to New York and 
found her apartment building, but knew he couldn't get past the the guard at the front of the building. So he snuck up the stairs at the back of the building, knocked on the door, and the maid answered. And he said, you know, hello, my name is Joel Platt, and I have a present for Mrs. Mrs. Ruth. And she overheard, you know, the encounter at the door and came to greet him. My dad presented Mrs. Claire Ruth the, the gift, and she was very taken back by the present and couldn't believe that he made it himself. She invited him in, and my father proceeded over the next hour and a half to tell her all about his collection, about the dream that he had of the babe visiting him, you know, as a youngster. And she was very impressed with him. Like I said, at the time, he was still a teenager. And someone that was that mature and had, you know, the vision at such a young age, it was very, it was very heartfelt inside of her that she knew that this was a man who was going to accomplish his goal and was going to do whatever it took to make it happen. So at the end of the hour and a half, she was only too happy to present my father with Babe's last uniform that he wore uh, for the Braves. She presented him one of Babe's last bats that he used during his career, numerous autographed baseballs, and my father was overwhelmed. And that really was the visit, the encounter, I would say, that really thrust him into the next echelon of collectors. And that's when he started getting media attention and newspaper articles and people started to really... Um, get to know Joel Platt as kind of the predominant person in the field of collecting. There are a couple of things that are are interesting about this collection as we we, uh, view examples of them uh, in in the book, all in in color photographs we might might mention. One of them is that it's interesting to me how much we can learn from some of this memorabilia. I mean, some of it is... Is 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 interesting uh, if if you have a photograph with with, with an athlete's uh, signature, but we don't necessarily learn a whole lot from that. But on the other hand, we can look in your father's collection and see what boxing gloves looked like in the first couple decades of of the twentieth century. Right. Um, we can see boxing gloves worn even by the great John L. Sullivan, who spent most of his career boxing without gloves. Uh, That kind of thing is of, it seems to me, enormous educational value. Well, it's great that you picked up on that because, you know, what makes this book special and unique is that there's numerous books out there that talk about the accomplishments of athletes and tell about their career, and they might have a single photo depicting them, you know, just a color 8 by 10 photo. But what makes our book special is that it's actual memorabilia gear, if you will, that these athletes use during their career. So you really could see the, how the uniforms have evolved, how the baseball gloves have evolved, the shoes, the boxing gloves. And it's, it really, there's something for everyone here. It's, it's a really great gift with the holiday season coming around the corner for sports fans of all ages. It's, it's a beautiful book. It's exciting. It's educational. And, you know, it's one of those things, like you said, that people can learn a lot from it. Does your father own this memorabilia now? Yes. Uh, so in, in, in any f- a way, was this, were some of these items signed over to him? Or, or, or is it just a matter of somebody, in, in, in effect, giving him wonderful gifts over and over again? Well, in addition to receiving several items from the athletes or relatives themselves over a 
eight-year period, my father purchased eight MAMS collections who were pioneers or Joel Platts of, his, of their time. So he purchased um, certain collections that one collection alone had maybe over 4,000 autographed baseballs. It was the largest baseball collection. Wow. And there was a person that owned uh, the largest boxing collection at the time, which is where um, some of the great clubs, the John L. Sullivan gloves came from. A lot of the James J. Jeffries and Jack Johnson items came from this boxing collection. So there, there's certain individuals that were collecting in the 30s, 40s, and 50s that, you know, might have had a similar goal to my father in that they wanted to, you know, create a museum for these athletes. And they were more than happy to part with the items because they knew that my father would carry on their goal and, in essence, they would attain their goal through my father. One of the things that is uh, interesting also in, in this whole story is uh, it, it brings up the question of, uh, if, if first of all, if the, is there anything out there that you still really want to have? Or, or do you feel like, in effect, this is already uh, an utterly complete, comprehensive collection, and really now the matter at hand is to construct this museum? Well, it's very important for us that we stay current as today. And we're still, every day, you know, we get calls from people. Uh, we have this item, we have this item, you know, are you interested in it for your museum or whatnot? And, you know, we, we stay current because unlike the Hall of Fames today where they require four, four years of retirement before they become inducted, you know, we, we acknowledge the Tiger Woods, as an, we call him an immortal among us, or Shaquille O'Neal, you know, Michael Jordan, Mario Lemieux, you know, we're as current as today and date back to the Roman Colosseum. But, you know, over the, the journey of my father, if, there, if you ask what was the most frustrating moment of an item that he could have acquired and he didn't, probably if you ask him, a Lou Gehrig uh, Yankee uniform hmm. is an item we're missing. We're also missing a Babe Ruth Yankee uniform. We have one from the Braves, but we don't have them in pinstripes. I wonder, too, do you have any sense that there is a lot of precious memorabilia that has been lost in the sense of, 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 of things that, that, that were not, simply weren't kept, that it never occurred to people that, that something would be valuable or cherished someday? And, and, I mean, obviously lots of things have been destroyed and lost and so on over the years, but do we have much sense of just how painful the loss really is? Well, you know... I can't tell you how many times my father told a story where, you know, he might have visited with an athlete or a relative, and this we're talking maybe in, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s here, and they would say that you're not going to believe this, Joel, but we just threw it in the garbage. You know, we're talking uniforms, gloves, bats, just no one knew the value of anything. I mean, there was a story where... Um, Hilrick and Bradsby were, were changing locations, the, the baseball bat manufacturers, and they would just open up their warehouses to people to just go and take bats. And, I mean, it was an amazing story. And some of those bats today, you know, if you found one from Ty Cobb or Hannes Wagner, it could be worth over $100,000. Wow. So, I mean, it's, it's amazing that my father had the foresight at a young age to know that these things were going to be valuable someday even though, you know, his motivation might not have been profit, but still today, you know, the value is just shooting 
through the roof. Right. Well, I suppose uh, when you say that your father has been curating these items, the fact is that there are probably many cases in which, uh, had your father not come along, uh, some of these very precious items just stored away in an unremarkable-looking box could so easily have been uh, discarded, destroyed, lost forever. I, I think that that's a true statement. I think if it wasn't for him, you know, and, and, I, and I mentioned that in my book, that, you know, I truly think he is a visionary, and, you know, he's really on a mission for mankind because this isn't a Joel Platt venture. He's really doing the Sports Mourners Museum to perpetuate the memories and achievements of these great athletes so that people for years to come will be able to look back on the careers of Babe Ruth and Jim Thorpe and names like Babe Dietrichson, Zaharias, that you know aren't household names today, but if it wasn't for people like him that would are you know keeping their spirits and memories alive, that, that children like my kids that are three months old, in five years or so, they, they can go out in the Little League and say, hey, I'm like Babe Ruth, instead of maybe, hey, I'm like Barry Bonds. We're, we're really giving them options, and there's so many great stories of his, historical figures, Jackie Robinson. I mean, I go on and on and on that, you know, we want to bring them to our, the forefront of the consciousness and the awareness of the people today so that people can really benefit from their endeavors, their work ethics, their achievements, and I think that's really important. You uh, say that you are hopeful of a decision being made fairly soon as far as the location for the Sports Immortal Museum. Correct. Tell us a little bit more about uh, that decision, how it will ultimately be made. Well, we're, we're in formal discussions right now with five states, and what we're looking for that's going to be the critical decision is the best site, and when I say site, I mean location within the city, and the best funding package. We're you know, really looking for a city that can wrap their arms around a project such as ours that you know, has such a mass appeal that could attract visitors from all over the world and really be the icon sports-slash-tourist attraction for a city. Well, we will watch that uh, uh, decision with, with great interest. And in the meantime, uh, people interested in uh, seeing for themselves uh, some of these priceless items of sports memorabilia should seek out this book called Sports Immortal, Stories of Inspiration and Achievement, written by Jim Platt uh, about the uh, memorabilia collection of his father, Joel Platt. The book is published by Triumph Books. Jim Can I Platt. add one thing, please? Yes. Um, we also have an excellent Internet site that talks a lot about our Sports Mortals Museum project. It also features a virtual gallery where people could see some of the great items from our collection. And it also has a store where people could purchase authentic memorabilia, but it also has, uh, we sell autographed copies of our book, Sports Mortal Stories of Inspiration and Achievement. It's available at our website, and the book is also available in all major bookstores throughout the country. Hmm. That brings to mind one, one question that, that it slipped my mind. When, when, uh, when we hear some of the stories about your father, uh, we are reminded that, that things have changed a great deal over the years. Uh, he tells, for instance, one story at some point in this book about being at a baseball game, I think, with his father, and how his father pointed out that in the stands, not far from them, was the great uh, boxer, Ezard Charles. Right. And he encouraged your father to uh, approach him for an autograph, and he was pleased that this young man had recognized him and uh, only uh, 
graciously and generously uh, gave him an autograph. I think that was maybe your father's first. Right, it was uh, his first autograph. Yeah, and the, the first of, of, of very many. But it's, I, I can't help but think of, I can't help but draw the, the contrast between that bygone era and, and now when uh, it is not so simple uh, a matter to approach a world-class athlete and ask for and expect uh, an autograph to be graciously and freely given in return. Right. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because that, that, that one encounter with Ezra Charles comes up a lot in a lot of interviews because, you know, it was, it was a unique situation back then where, you know, athletes were just flattered that they were picked out in the stands, like Ezra Charles was. And today, when, you know, you see all these little boys and girls wanting to, lining up to get autographs at the game, and unless it's someone special like a Cal Ripken or a Joe Namath that'll sit there and sign for hours and hours, it's, you know, it's, it's touch and go whether someone's going to sign or not. It depends on their mood. And it's just, I think it really says a lot for if you see an athlete today that'll take time to sign for a child. I think Nomar Garcia Parra is very good at doing that. And there's very few individuals that will do it. And I think when you find someone like that, it's a very class act. And, you know, as a, as a sports historian like myself, I really appreciate that when you see someone that has achieved greatness on the field, but it hasn't gone to their head. I think that makes someone very special. Right. It's, it seems to me, too, that uh, it isn't just a story of athletes changing, but those that seek autographs have probably changed a bit, too, and are not always as gracious as they could be or as sensitive as they could be uh, in, in the way that they, they approach somebody for an autograph. Right. I, I think, you know, in, in speaking on the athletes' behalf, too, I think, you know, back then, you know, when you asked for an athlete's autograph, it was, it was purely because it was something that you were going to, as a keepsake, you were going to have it, you know, in your room or on the wall, and it might not have had much value. When, when today these athletes, when they get sought after for their autographs, they don't know the motivation behind the people. And I think that's what makes collecting so difficult today because, you know, to get to these athletes, you know, they always think that people have an ulterior motive, and it's not just for their love or the love of the game. They're doing it for the love of money, and, and they figure why, should, why shouldn't they benefit if someone else is going to benefit from their signature. So it's kind of... You know, it's a difficult scenario right now. Well, one thing about the book, then, is that it, it takes us back into uh, another era, not only uh, uh, an era of past athletes and past achievements, but also of, of maybe a, a, a little simpler time, when right. it was a little simpler to be an athlete and, and to be a fan. Uh, give us, if you would, Jim, the uh, uh, web address of, of, the, of the website that you were telling us about. Sure. Our website is sportsimmortals.com, all one word. And we also have, like I said, our Showcase Museum Center in Boca Raton, Florida. If any of your listeners get down to South Florida, it's definitely worth coming to take a trip here. And the book, once again, is Sports Immortals, Stories of Inspiration and Achievement. Published by Triumph Books. Jim Platt, a real pleasure to talk with you today on The Morning Show. I thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me.
The preceding morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2002. It may interest you to know that Joel Platt's extraordinary sports memorabilia collection can still be enjoyed at the facility in Boca Raton, Florida, the Sports Immortals Museum and Art Gallery, somewhat downsized but still open for business. And you can still visit the aforementioned website, sportsimmortals.com. The website includes access to the ebook version of the book, Sports Immortals, as well as other resources. I'm Gregory Berg. 